There's a group of people in our society who are in pretty deep trouble. They are lagging behind in education and employment and disproportionately die of suicide and drug overdoses. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about boys and men. My guest on the podcast today says that while this topic has been taboo, it's high time to have the conversation as its impacts are felt all around us. Look, the dam is going to break at some point. Everyone's talking about this. Every dinner table, every school gate, everyone knows this is an issue. Richard Reeves is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he directs the Boys and Men Project. His new book is called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. Richard Reeves is my guest today on Lean Out. Richard, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to have you here. What an interesting book this is. So much to talk about today. The status of boys and men is something you've been thinking about for a long time, both in your day job as a policy scholar and in your family life as a father to three boys. This is a deeply controversial field of inquiry, one that colleagues and friends warned you off of. What was the tipping point? When did you know that you were going to go ahead and write this book anyway? I think it may have been the fifth colleague warning me off (laughs) because there came a point where I genuinely came to believe that if this is really an area that I can't tackle even in this way, then we're really in trouble. And we've created a self-reinforcing cycle whereby we basically just say it's a no-go zone for anybody who isn't on the alt-right, which means the only people writing about it are on the alt-right, which means it becomes more of a no-go zone. And so it probably was a little bit of that, a sense of, wow, okay, if if this is really seen as such treacherous territory, then I'd, be- I'd better get into it. And in my sort of slightly earnest boring, fact-driven, you know, Brookings-y way, maybe make it a little bit less. So make it (laughs) slightly safe, maybe make it slightly safer ground to tread on. And um, it was that. And also just a few of the facts, I just really probably weren't getting quite enough attention or at least just struck me. And so there was one moment in particular in 2020, I was already pretty committed to doing the book at that point, but you know, the fact that the college enrollment rate dropped seven times more for men than it did for women mm. in that first year of the pandemic and w- with literally no commentary was just something that it was a real, it was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. I was like, okay, that is something that we should, that should be getting some attention and, and it just wasn't. So that was another moment. It's like, okay, there's, there's stuff here we should be talking about that we're not. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's set the stage here for listeners. So you write in the book that in order to understand this culture shock from women's economic independence, that we need anthropologists as much as economists. So what are we talking about sort of in broad strokes when we talk about how the modern male is doing in education, employment and family? Like how how bad is it? Well, it depends where you look and who you look at. So an important caveat here is that your men at the top still generally doing pretty well you know, at the top of the social and economic ladders. And there are some parts of society right at the apex, of course, where there's still quite a bit more work to do on behalf of women and girls. So I am focused mostly on working class, middle class boys and men, and especially black boys and men. But if you take, let's, let's put a few facts on the table just to get us going. In education, for example, uh, women are now 15 percentage points more likely to get a college degree than men. In 1972, 
which was when Title IX was passed to promote women and girls, there was a gap in favor of men of 13 percentage points. So there's a bigger gender gap on college campuses today than there was in 72 when Title IX was passed. It's just reversed, flipped the other way around. And there are lots of other examples in education too. It's mostly that's a relative story, of course. That's a share story rather than absolute one. In the labor market, there's a both there's really a, a strongly negative absolute story, which is that most American men today earn less than most American men did in 1979, which is a pretty extraordinary and brutal economic fact uh, of life. Just this backwards movement for men in the labor market has been extraordinary. And 10 million men with a high school diploma are, complete, are out of the labor force altogether. That's a third of that group. Um, with a high school diploma are out of the labor market. So, and a lot of that then translates into family life where you've just seen a transformation in family life with one in five fathers not in touch with their children uh, and obviously significantly increased family instability, which is both a good and a bad thing because it's partly as a result of the greater choices that women in particular have about family life. But the result of all that has been to create quite a disorienting and difficult environment for men. And again, working class men in particular then you can see the symptoms in things like suicide rates, opioid deaths, so-called deaths of despair that combine suicide, alcohol, and drug abuse, where the rates are at least three times higher for men than for women and have risen by about 50% in the last two or three decades. Mm. I mean, the numbers really are staggering as you go through the book. You write about how we've sort of torn up the scripts for men and women, and the one for women is working. I I, I sort of would beg to differ on that in some instances. Hmm. I've written about that a fair bit, but let's stick to men for now. So if if there is no new script for men right now, how do you think we, you must have spent a lot of time thinking about this. How do we get to this point? How did nobody see the sort of collateral damage coming? Well, I think to be fair, a lot of conservatives did see it coming uh, back in the 70s. Uh, social conservatives were warning, well, you know, if we get women's economic independence, then, you know, we'll be writing men out of the script and they'll the, and that will be bad for everyone. Their prediction was that the men would act out in on mass in sort of marauding bands of Mad Max style, you know, criminality. And whilst, of course, there are some exceptions to this rule, the rule actually has been the other way around. We've seen a decline in violent crime in the last few mm. decades and less male violence. So that has not transpired in the way that they feared. But they they were right at least to say, hold on, what does this mean for men? But their their solution was so let's stop all this feminism stuff, right? Well. That was wrong morally, and they lost the and they lost. Whereas I think for those who are focused on women and girls, quite rightly, were paying attention to the issues of women and girls. And at best, what this meant for boys and men was always going to be a second order question. Mm. And to some extent, it was a well, get over yourselves, right? You've had ten thousand years. Like we're going to get we're going to get equality. If you can't cope with that, it's kind of on you. And I understand that from the point of view of kind of a, the revolution that was being driven in, in women's position. But the result of those of the sort of neglect of the issue on the left and the the failure to update with, to the times on the right meant that no one was really taking this cultural task seriously. I think the left didn't think it needed to happen, and the right thought, "Well, it's too late." Or to the extent they've got a script, it is the old script. <laughs> so the mm -hmm. left don't think men the left don't think men need a script, or if they do, it's just could you be less? less of this masculinity thing would be good to so just dial everything down and the right just say yeah well we need to go back to the 50s and neither of those are very helpful to men in the in the modern world mm -hmm. and you do draw attention in particular to black men and to working class 
men. This is something I thought about a lot because I started my career reporting on hip hop for the first six years, and that is the constituency of hip hop. Can you unpack a little bit why these particular trends are impacting working class men and, and black men particularly hard right now? I will do that, but I'm going to ask you a question, which is, you said a moment ago that you weren't so sure about the new script for women working. And I, I, I'm just really intrigued to hear you talk a bit about that. And then I promise I'll come, and then I promise I'll come okay. back and answer your question. I, I know, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but you, you, <laughs> no, you, no, put no. It, you put it out there. You put it out there, Tara. So. No, it's fine. So when I was turning 40, I did a documentary called 39 about exactly this issue. Is this script working for us as women? And I, it was for the CBC in Canada, and I interviewed a lot of women across a lot of backgrounds. And what I discovered was that a lot of women felt that it was not working, that in some ways we had been kind of sold a, a false bill of goods, that for one thing, this script concentrated too many life events in the early 30s. So you would need to be pushing your mm -hmm. career really hard, but also trying to find a mate and trying to have children at the same time. And that it produced really hectic life circumstances for those who could pull it off. But many could not pull it off. Like many did not end up having children in time in terms of biologically. Many kind of felt like there were big gaps in their life that were missing. A lot of women that I spoke to that had careers and small children felt like they had no community and no female friendship and were really lonely. And so it it felt like this script doesn't particularly work that well for women either. And then in the years since, so I'm 46, when I made that documentary, I was 39. In the years since then, we've seen the advent of smartphones and how much that has impacted dating and made a lot of these trends even more difficult for women who are trying to juggle all these different forces all at once and a housing crisis that has made it incredibly difficult for women to provide housing for themselves and move into that next stage of life when they want to. That's like a nutshell of... of <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, I, I think the... Um... The f I, I do think that there, at least there, there was a, I think what you're saying is that script was clear, but it wasn't necessarily all it was cracked up to be. And what I'm saying is there isn't a script for men. Mm, um, yes. So what you, you know, so yes. the script of uh, the script of economically and in, economically independent, you go girl, get your own fit, have a career, have a family, you know, the kind of, you know, girl boss, superwoman thing. Yes. Um, that turned out like in many, many ways to be challenging, but at least it was at least at least a, a very powerful message was sent to girls and women about what they should do. And so in some senses, what happened, I think, was that women ended up with too much to do and men ended up with not enough to do. That's such a good way of putting it. Yeah. As a result of these changes, because as men, it's like, well, I don't know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, no one seems to need me anymore. And so they kind of drift. And as women, it's like, yeah, you can go, you can have, you can have everything, right? You're going to have great career, great sex, great kids, great life, great, great food, great soft furnishings. If you just work, <laughs> if you just work, if you just work harder, right? Yeah. And so, so I agree that there's like real downsides. And I would say that the structural problem there is that we just have failed to update our labor market institutions mm. sufficiently for, for for the world of like dual dual earners and for the world of women like it's it's amazing to me really given the massive changes we've seen in women's employment and family life that our labor market institutions and i would say in particular the career ladder have just remained so unreformed and so it's not just like the day-to-day -day flexible working type stuff but i think the the very shape of the way the career ladder works and you've just identified it in the 30s especially mm. it's just it's not just it's not just not family friendly it's family hostile absolutely um, and, and i just so 
like a big part of my argument around fatherhood and reforming the labor market is just like there's this, this huge 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 gap um and then, and then so actually I, I will i will kind of come back to your your question because the the although i think a lot of this conversation some of what we just talked about has a very upper middle class professional feel to it right? mm-hmm. of course um yeah. and i'm not saying there aren't problems there but when you're looking at the people who are really at the sharp end of it it is working class men all the trends we just talked about earnings death of despair much more acute among lower income men this lack of community much greater but black men in particular face this particular intersection of disadvantage so already for every two college degrees uh, acquired by black women there's only one acquired by black men black men have seen very almost no earnings growth like working class men meanwhile white women have actually seen very strong earnings growth so for mm-hmm. every dollar for every dollar earned by a white woman a black man earns 84 cents whereas in 79 black men earn more than white women so white women have blown past black men in the labor market and so you've got to think intersectionally here and, and not and you've got to understand like what's going on at that different level and just educationally economically it's really hard i think to avoid the conclusion that black boys and men are worse off not not despite being men being male but in many cases because they are because they're seen as more of a threat they're criminalized excluded etc and so I, I think that the really sharp end of this of this crisis is really being felt by black men and when i talk to you know black men about this in my own life one of the, my godson said to me once he said look this whole idea of toxic masculinity you seem to think that's a new idea mm. well black men have been living with the idea of toxic masculinity for about as long as we can remember our masculinity has always been seen as toxic mm-hmm. so it's kind of like welcome to the party white guys mm. conversation because i do i think that sense of the pathologization of masculinity it was always been true for black, black men at that intersection mm-hmm. uh, and so there's a lot to be learned from that experience it is interesting, though, that a lot of this toxic masculinity conversation comes from the progressive left now. I mean, that that is that is noteworthy, isn't it? Yeah, almost all of it. I would say now. Interestingly, I would I I would have said that when it was being when it was being applied to black men, maybe you get more of a conservative voice around that. But yes, it's entirely a uh, a left wing thing. And I should say that the term wasn't really applied to black men specifically. We talk about predator, super predators, wolf packs, et cetera. It would just be a, there are all kinds of stereotypes for black women too, to be clear. But for black men, there was this, there were a lot of stereotypes around what kind of, what their masculinity was like. Toxic masculinity as a term didn't exist outside the margins of academia until 2016. And then it, and then it sort of burst and became a very common term for all. I, I think an unhelpful one in, in its actual use because it it now is just used pretty indiscriminately to describe any behaviour by boys or men that we don't like, <laughs> and so it's all to- it's, it's all toxic. And that, so the definition of toxicity has been sp- spread so wide now as to become unhelpful. And also, just the evidence is that it just is not a phrase that is helpful to boys and men. If you're trying to help boys and men adapt to the modern world, then saying why well, you just need less toxic masculinity just doesn't seem to be a good strategy. And one thing I've been wondering about a lot here, reading the book, thinking about it, reflecting on it, this is particularly relevant given that we're speaking on the day of the American midterm elections, is how much of the political polarization that we're seeing do you think is attributable to this rift between the sexes? How much of this shouting between the far left and the far right is actually shouting between men and women? 
Well, I think there's a lot of that. And we see, I mean, Donald, it's not a coincidence that Donald Trump won with the biggest gender gap in recording recorded exit polling history in 2016. He did win back a few college-educated men. And sorry, then Biden won, won back some college-educated men in 2020. But now actually we're seeing quite a strong move of Hispanic uh, and black men uh, towards the Republicans. That was happening anyway. I think it's obviously swamped by class. Class is a is a much bigger divide, and that that does proxy to education. But because education is increasingly correlated with gender, actually the class divide is overlapping with the gender divide. Right. So mm. if you're interested in if you're interested if you're appealing to college educated folks, then they're more and more of those are women. So if you take the the proposal to cancel student debt, two thirds of student debt is held by women. So that was a very very pro women pro college educated women policy. But I would say that but part of the divide is not just between men and women. It's about men and women. So it's about the ideas around men and women. And I think that's really become a very big part of the culture war politics. And so the right have really managed to take these male problems and turn them into grievances and weaponize them against the left by pointing out that the left just goes on about toxic masculinity, it's obsessed with trans rights, et cetera. And, and Josh Hawley has become a very outspoken critic and saying, look, it's the men are, men are suffering because the left hate you. It's basically the message. Uh, and it's quite a powerful message because the left do enough to give that plausibility. Meanwhile, on the left, there's this real, because they're really diving down and trying to get out as many women's votes as possible. There's just a, just a refusal to even acknowledge that there's anything here to see. Mm -hmm. which of course creates a huge vacuum, which of course someone's then going to take up. So you've sort of got, you know, a sort of uh, crudely put, I see, I see the left as you know turning their backs on boys and men and the right responding by wanting to turn back the clock on women and girls. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, most of us are in the middle trying to figure out how to have a world that's equal but not androgynous and we're as, as worried about our sons as our daughters. And you know, and we want gender equality, but we're, you know, but it's hard, basically. And neither this kind of this kind of culture war, air war that's going on, you know, above us, just you know, mostly just misses misses the point. And you, you are seeing that playing out. And I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. And it frust it frustrates me hugely mm -hmm. to see a failure by more responsible leaders on both sides to just address this in a more responsible way. I, I do think it's an axiom of political life that if there are real problems and responsible people don't address them and irresponsible people will exploit them. And I think we're seeing that now. Mm -hmm. Another thing I wanted to spend a moment on is, is the manosphere on incels. Uh, as one evolutionary psychologist in the book that you quote puts it, the math problem of surplus men. I I have been shocked at how little sympathy there is for this type of male pain, um, particularly in relation to suicides, overdoses. Uh, Musa Algarbi from Colombia recently gave a great talk, and he pointed out, you know, that the desire to love and be loved for physical intimacy to build a life with someone, these are not peripheral concerns. They strike at the heart of what it means to be human. I thought we'd already acknowledged all of this in the gay marriage conversation. Why is there so little empathy for men in this context? with that well i i think part of it is because of how it's expressed by by a very small number of men and that you know so you will see these sometimes even terrible acts of violence or kind of straightforward misogyny in some some parts of the manosphere where the the real struggles that men are having including in the romantic market and more generally um, metastasizes into something really pretty ugly, and you and you do see that. And that's some of the stuff and the, the bullying that goes on of like women 
who are speaking out in public and so on. It's pretty horrific. And so I think that the behavior of that very small percentage of men is seen as as seen as representative of the views and feelings of a vast swath of men. And in my view is it's not by and large. It's, it's just not. Um, and But it's used then. So you tar them all with that brush basically mm. and you see a horrible act of incel terrorism and it's like well it's all these you know all these lost boys on the internet so well <laughs> m- m- many of us have actually you know had experience of actually lots of men lives who would fall into that category of being lost and not knowing what to do and and actually being drawn to someone who appears to at least be listening to them mm-hmm. paying them paying them a courtesy of listening to them and then they ca- then they can be led like the, the you know the algorithm the pied piper algorithm of the internet can lead people to darker places but I think that's why, because of the acting out point. And I guess also there's a fear here that we're reintroducing some sense of male entitlement. And I understand that fear because there's been so much of it in our history. And you will get some people talking about it. Was a member, a woman running for Congress talked about the right to sex. Mm. And Amir Srinivasan has a book about that. And so, yeah, I think men, I think men should have a right to say, and she had to retreat. And it was, and so, it, as soon as you get to that, if it starts to smack at all of entitlement, then there's an understandable kind of real backlash. In the meantime, the deeper problem is the one you've identified, which is the need for intimacy, the need to be in a relationship, and I would say above all, the need to be needed. Because it's pretty clear that a human universe is need to be needed. Someone needs me. Mm-hmm. Someone's counting on me. Someone's relying on me, and I and I see the underlying problem here is just so many men feeling like unneeded. And so we talk a lot about like, well, is this just about meeting their needs? Look, all the things they need. Why why should women meet the needs of these men? Right? It's not the job of women to save men. And I agree with that as a general proposition. But I think there's something else going on here. Is that what they're really saying is they need to be needed, and you you can create a situation if you're not careful where lower status men, especially. Uh, who are struggling in all kinds of markets, the marriage market, the labor market, actually they end up feeling unneeded. And that does lead to some of these problems. Uh, I quote in the book some work by Fiona Shand and her colleagues on suicide. What they did was they tracked the, what were the last words that men used to describe themselves before committing suicide? And the two most commonly used words were to describe themselves were useless and worthless. Basic ah. human compassion, I think, basic human compassion would lead us to think that if someone feels that they, I, I am of no use, I am of no worth, then actually suicide might well seem like a rational course. But how can we get to a point where we can be blasé about the fact that so many of our fellow citizens do feel that about themselves? And the fact that they are men is no reason not to help them mm-hmm. um, and be compassionate towards them. But unfortunately, that's the state of our current debate. Mm-hmm. And also that I wonder too about the feeling of of being unheard. And there does seem to be this huge hunger for male spaces to talk through these kinds of issues. And yet when those spaces spontaneously emerge, I'm thinking about the Joe Rogan podcast. I have a lot of respect for Joe Rogan. Um, we are so critical as a culture. I mean, there's been so much critique of Joe Rogan and and figures like him, you know, who do have these yeah. male conversations. Jordan, Jordan Peterson is another great example of that. And I have serious disagreements with him about many things, but my God, like the fact that there's such demand for those kinds of spaces um, to have these, to have good faith conversations about what's going on right now. Uh, because and again, I speak partly here as a father too. It's like it's hard for young men 
through traditional education system or even just in society to find those places, find those spaces where you can have those conversations and have a and have an honest and a fair hearing and express yourself honestly about how you're feeling, maybe about sex or rejection or struggling at school or whatever. And and they're so fearful that even raising those subjects will will um kind of open the floodgates of criticism that then of course they will go. They will go to the stadiums that Peterson's flocking to. They will become one of the 200 million people or whatever it is listening to Joe Rogan. So the fact that there is such demand for those kinds of spaces, I think is an incredibly important cultural fact. And just dismissing everyone who's interested in them as somehow misogynist or unreformed or not with the program is, is in my view, not only immoral, but also just deeply irresponsible because there is something going on here. Mm-hmm. And I want I want to talk about fatherhood now for a moment. Um, you have a number of policy proposals in this book, ranging from holding back male children a year in school to encouraging men to seek out uh, more traditionally female employment in the caring fields to reorganizing how we as a society treat fatherhood. You write that the question going forward is how to maintain the chains of dependency between fathers and children in a world where the ones between men and women have been successfully broken. Just briefly, what would that look like going forward? It's about a direct relationship between fathers and children rather than this indirect one. So the I, the mental model I have of the traditional family is of a you know the breadwinning father, the caring mother, and the and the kids. And a mum has a direct line. If you think of an org chart version of the family, right? There's a direct line from mum to the kids, a direct line horizontally from dad to mum, or maybe slightly up, but hopefully it's egalitarian. If it's a, he has his role. She has her role. And then it's a dotted line from dad to the kids, right? So the dad's relationship with children was conditional on, contingent on the relationship with the mom. So husband and father was essentially a single phrase, single job, right? To be a good husband and father. But now that that chain, that link between the men and women, now that women are much, much less economically dependent on men and marriage is a choice as the women's movement um, promised that it would be, what does that mean for fathers? And I think it means you need a direct line there, no longer a dotted line. But a direct relationship between fathers and children that may be different to, but is equal to the one that mothers have with children, and crucially, may well occur within marriage, or at least co-residence, but doesn't have to. That it's a relationship that stands on its own, even outside of traditional marriage. And I think that's where, again, we're having this real problem talking about this because many people on the left will deny that fathers have anything special to bring to the party, which I think is wrong empirically. Mm. Um, but people on the right will just say, oh, it's, well, we've got to get men married. So, well, okay, maybe. But right now, 40% of kids are born outside marriage. Most kids are non-college educated. Two-thirds of divorces are initiated by women. And so, sure, maybe more fatherhood will lead to more marriage, but you can't lead with marriage because you just bench too many men. But you could lead with fatherhood. And so things like equal paid leave, more rights for fathers who are not married to the mothers. So we've really failed to reform the child support system for the unmarried parents, just haven't haven't kept pace at all. But the cultural message behind that is dads matter, period. They might be breadwinners, they might not, but they matter, period. Uh, and so any any man who's a father who doesn't think that he's needed has been sold some been sold a false bill of goods by someone for a long because I tell you his kids need him for sure mm-hmm. and his sons especially his sons especially need him but all his kids need him I was really struck by one study which found that the mental health of women at the age of 33 was pretty strongly predicted by the quality of their relationship with their father at the age of 16. I saw that, that my f- goodness feel, it feels feels true doesn't it it feels mm-hmm. right to me it's like just like if you're a 16 year old girl and you have a good relationship with your dad and he's kind of with you and helping you through that period 
of course that's going to predict that you'll do better in life everything else equal and so i really worry about the different way the, the ways in which fathers are being sidelined in in contemporary society Mm-hmm. I just want to return for a moment to the right. Um, I read a, a sort of conservative-leaning review of your book from Scott Yenner, and I just want to, which you retweeted to your credit, mm. um, Reeves yep. thinks, this is from his review, Reeves thinks society can have today's liberal feminism along with the health of men in the family. Reeves thinks we can respect sex differences, create new social roles for men and women, and treat all as individuals. I think we should choose between feminist... Uh, we must choose between feminist ideals and the health of men and women in the family. I think we cannot create social roles for men and women without qualifying our support for individualism. Um, I come from very progressive circles. I've spent my adult life in them. In in many ways, a lot of these ideas and their very extreme endpoint can can be quite destructive for the family unit. How do you think through sort of what that paragraph just said? Yeah, well, I, that's the paragraph I tweeted too because I just think it absolutely nails quite rightly the the, the, the disagreement between uh, Scott and I, and you know, and I thought it was a, a really a genuinely very thoughtful and substantive review of the book, and that's that's what I want. And uh, Scott is very socially conservative. I've been on platforms with him, um, and I what I the 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 philosophical argument I want to make is that. In the end, the social institutions and commitments that people make freely from positions of individual strength and individual freedom are no less valuable because of that. Uh, that actually, if we get to a situation where, as many college-educated Americans are doing, by the way, get to a situation where actually equal and equally independent men and women form social institutions like marriage, co-parenting, et cetera, on that basis of much greater equality of power between the two, that is a better society than one in which the social institutions rely on some kind of dependency of one party on the other. I am am a sort of liberal individualist in that sense, in that I think that if you have half the population who have more say in how their life goes now, that's a good thing. (laughs) Like I just think in aggregate, that's a good thing. But where I agree with conservatives is that this is also an incredibly destabilizing thing. I mean, massively destabilizing. There's a reason why these, the social institutions of family and marriage have been around for so long and have been so successful. When you think about traditional marriage, the good things about it were clear division of labor, so everyone knew what they were doing, uh, very stable family forms are pretty good for the kids. As I said, because of the division of labor, kind of huge efficiency. It could be very egalitarian. My own parents' marriage was very traditional, but very egalitarian as well. Like it didn't have, it wasn't, it wasn't some oppressed site of oppression. Um, and so there was a lot to be said for it. But there was one fatal flaw, which is it did at, at heart rest on this dependence of one party on the other. Mm. Uh, and I think that was its fatal flaw, successfully identified by the women's movement and now largely demolished. There's an empirical argument here too, which is just like, we ain't going back, Scott. Even if you wanted to, even if you uh, people agree with you, do you, do you really think that there's, a, 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 there's any, this just genie is out of the bottle? I don't, I don't, I mean, Josh Hawley's wife is an incredibly successful lawyer. Um, do, do we know many conservatives who don't really want their daughters to have all the same educational and economic opportunities as their sons? Not many. And so the inevitable consequence of that is that you've undone the fundamental basis of the traditional family. And that is not, I don't want it to come back. I don't, I don't want to undo that progress. But I do want to take seriously the fact that that progress has come at a huge cost. 
massive dislocation and ask huge questions of what we do with the men. And so the conservatives are right to worry about, hey, well, worry, worry about the men. And the left were wrong to ignore it. But the conservatives were wrong to say, so let's stop all this feminism nonsense. You know, if we if women get out of the kitchen, the, the, men, the men are toast, right? That, that, uh, it's done. We're done. Uh, unfortunately, that is stuff's in the rearview mirror now. Um, so I have both a philosophical and an empirical objection to uh, Scott's position. Mm. Interesting. And just just lastly, I mean, public opinion does seem to be shifting on this issue in real time. I mean, you wrote in the book, one of your goals is to bridge the gap between the private and the public. You are getting a lot of press for this book, um, including in the mainstream. Reception is really positive. Are you feeling hopeful that this conversation is unfolding and that we're starting to talk about men and boys? I am hopeful. I There is a point at which just the demand for the conversation becomes just unstoppable and people start to see like if it's not met in this way in these sorts of spaces these kind of conversations it's going to be met somewhere else and so the overall sense i've i've gotten from people is thank god we can have this conversation in a relatively safe space um and i think that's true on both sides of the aisle i think the reason you know i think scott you know, very socially conservative, can engage with this book and say, like, I disagree with him about all of this, but I don't think he's intent on abolishing the family and the gender binary and thinks all masculinity is toxic and blah, blah, blah. He doesn't think that. He 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 knows that we're kind of on the same side in that we're about human flourishing. We're just just you know, disagreeing about the best way to get. So he's, but then equally, people like Michelle Goldberg writing in the Times and you know, Gabby Hensliff in The Guardian and so on, they're saying, look, there is definitely a problem here for, for boys and men, but guess what? We can engage with that without having to give up our prior commitments to still saying there's a lot to do for, for women and girls. And so in a sense, what I'm trying to do is help people out of the trap of these zero-sum games. And what I'm getting generally in response is just huge relief at that, which is like great. You mean we can just have a normal conversation about this? <laughs> I don't have to become a signed up culture warrior. Um, uh, and so it's, it's, I, I get a lot of people saying like, um, my wife or my girlfriend wasn't sure, but we listened to it. We had a great conversation or I came to this conversation quite skeptical, quite skeptical, but mm, yeah, you've made me think or that's all we can ask. And I, I, the, the dam was going to break at some point. The, everyone's talking about this every dinner table every school gate everyone knows this is an issue um and so it wasn't going to go away and i do i do hope that we are entering a new phase now where we can we can have a proper conversation about it the last thing is matthew iglesias wrote a long review of the book which i thoroughly recommend to people and in it he described the book as earnest bordering on banal (laughs) <laughs> and I wouldn't always, I wouldn't always take that as a compliment, but you know what? That's kind of what I was going. That's the vibe I was going for here because there's enough, there's enough polemical stuff here. And I can, yeah, this is, this is a real problem. Let's, let's just address it the way we would address other problems and disagree about the solutions. But like, let's just, can we just everyone take a deep breath? And what I feel happens as people read my book, they come into it with, with maybe some priors, right? And they're quite sort of, and then they start. They start. And they just they start breathing. Oh, okay, okay, fine, right, right. So we take it, it, the book is basically a way of taking ten deep breaths before even discussing the subject, right? Because here's all these facts. Here's all these things. Here's the tone. Um, and if if I have helped even in the slightest way to help us have a more responsible conversation about this, then I'll be incredibly happy. And so far, so good. 
Well, I certainly felt a lot of relief reading it and, uh, and talking about it today. So thank you so much for the book and thank you for the conversation. Thanks for having me on. That was great. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.